This morning's Bible reading is from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 22. So if you'll give us a moment to open up to that. That's Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 22. And it says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it out with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like a morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning to everyone, and again, another happy Father's Day, particularly uh, if you're new 
with us today or visiting us today. Uh, again, just another warning like I did a couple of weeks ago, we'll be jumping around yet again. Uh, so please keep your Bibles open as we'll be going through the passages quite quickly. We'll be covering uh, from chapters 41 to 48, roughly, um, but they'll be heading on the screen later on. Now, I remember during my time at Bible College, uh, reading about missionaries who went to Africa to share the good news about Jesus. And uh, coming from Western countries like America, what they found confronting was the amount of idolatry that they saw everywhere. Uh, and so, uh, next slide, yep, thank you. Next slide, yep. Uh, every family uh, would have their gods, their idols, that they would keep in their homes and they would bow down to, offer food or whatever. Um, and, but not only in the homes, but around every street corner, you'll see like a little shrine uh, with the gods at every single street corner. But when this missionary mentioned this uh, to the local church there in Africa, that it must be so challenging to share Jesus when there's all these other gods competing uh, uh, with their culture. Or the local church constantly be, being bombarded, being tempted by the presence of all these idols. What shocked the missionary was what he heard from the local African pastor. Because the pastor said, I feel the danger is far worse where you're from in the West. Uh, because for us, we can easily see what the idols are, what the things that draw us away from God are. But for you in America, or really for anyone else in the West like us here in Australia, your idols, he says, have become so infused, so hidden from sight that it's far more dangerous for you guys. And so often, the African Christians, they, they see, they look at the Western church, and by and large, they see God's people bowing down to the same idols that all the rest of society are bowing down to without even knowing or acknowledging it. And now you might think, what is this African pastor going on about? How can we still be in danger of bowing down to idols if we don't even have these little statues in our houses that we physically offer food to? Well, this morning, as we look at God's warning to his people 3,000 years ago not to worship idols, we'll actually see that this warning is just as relevant to us today here in Brisbane 2021. But just to remind ourselves of where we are, from chapter 40 onwards in Isaiah, God is now addressing a people who have experienced God's just punishment. Right? They were expelled from their homeland, stuck far away in a land called Babylon, their enemies. And last week, we saw that God's message has now shifted. Instead of proclaiming judgment and laying out the sin of the people, now God is telling them to take comfort. Comfort because your God, the God of the whole world, is truly powerful and loves you. Comfort because this powerful God has promised to save you. But as we come to our section today, we see there's a problem. Because even as God comforts and assures his people in Babylon, God's people would rather trust in another source of security and salvation. They would rather trust in their idols, their false gods. 
And so now God sets up a, a courtroom. Uh, next slide, please. He calls on his people to be witnesses, right? You want to trust in your idols? Let's compare them and me. And so in chapter 41, verse 1, he summons the nations to come. Come, present your case. Come to this place of judgment. Come, be witnesses as we come to this great debate. Come and see for yourselves. And so in this courtroom, God speaks first. We already saw last week that God reminded his people that he was the one who created the ends of the earth, who doesn't grow tired or weary, who brings out the multitude of stars in the sky, and he knows each one by name, who holds all the waters in the oceans in the palm of his hands. That's God. God is far more powerful than we can even understand to get our minds around. But God continues to lay that down to show how incomparable he is. Because no one else can single-handedly control the kingdoms of the earth like he can. Who, who is it that summons a foreign king to do his will? Who takes a foreign king and hands over other kings into his hands? Kings that don't even know who God is. Who has preordained all these things to happen, planning for generations to rise and fall before they even existed? Well, there's only one answer, isn't there? It's the Lord. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God of all the earth. No one else can do that. But God doesn't simply claim that he can control nations and make kingdoms rise and fall, right? God does one better. God says, I'm going to tell you who this king is. In chapter 45, he names the king by name Cyrus. And this was written over 100 years before Cyrus was even born. Uh, and so, in fact, even a lot of modern scholars today, when they read this passage, their conclusion is that this part of Isaiah must have been written afterwards, after the events have taken place, uh, after Cyrus had already taken Israel and put them back in their homeland. See, these scholars, they can't imagine how it would be possible for a text written hundreds of years before to predict a king by name who would save Israel. But as we've been looking at God, who he shows himself to be throughout the pages of Isaiah, why is it that surprising that the one who has miraculous power, predicting the birth of a child in righteousness, wiping away an entire army without any natural explanation, as we saw in chapter 30, chapter 37 and 38, why should we be surprised that a God who created the whole universe is able to predict Cyrus by name? And in fact, in these chapters, we see that God is actually doing something really unexpected. God is doing something really unusual precisely to get our attention. God doesn't usually name kings by name, but he does so now. Why? Because God is presenting an argument here. And that is, who else can orchestrate a foreign king to defeat Babylon and save you? And so God says, here you go, bam, I'm going to give you his name. I'm going to name drop him, Cyrus, before he even existed. I'm going to name drop him so that you will know that I am the Lord. I am your God who has complete power over all creation. When he saves you, Israel, my people, 
you will know that I am your God. But perhaps a bit shockingly here, this Cyrus is called God's anointed. And that is, if you know the, the Old Testament, this is the same word uh, that is the word used for Messiah, right? This is God's special chosen king to do his will, to rule in righteousness. Uh, elsewhere in Isaiah, God also calls Cyrus his servant. Now, we don't have time to, to dig into what all this means, but the point here is that God's power is so great that even the mightiest king of this great upcoming empire who will wipe away Babylon, well, this king is merely another pawn to do God's work. He's another servant in God's eyes. And what is this work? God will use Cyrus to save Israel. Cyrus will make a decree, a simple decree, to say, you can go back home now, you Israelites. 70 years of exile over, just like that. And so we see God is so powerful. God can name future kings to do his dirty bidding. But more importantly, we now see that God is the one who acts. God is the one who loves his people. And so Isaiah 41, 9 to 13, God again says, do not be afraid. I am with you. We've heard that over and over again, haven't we? First to King Ahaz in chapter 7, shown in King Hezekiah in chapters 37 to 38, and now to his displaced people in Babylon without a king. It's still the same. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I promise that you will be lifted up. You won't even see a single enemy of yours, even if you try to look for your enemy. That is how strong that restoration and protection of God over his people will be. And so God, who is he? He is utterly powerful over all the kingdoms of the earth. Powerful kings are just another pawn on his chessboard. God has the foreknowledge to precisely predict what is going to happen. And God is for his people. He loves you, Israel. That is who God is. All right, that's God's argument. So now let's the idol's turn. Come on, show us your qualifications. Why should we trust you to be our gods? And as God calls these idols up to present their case, well, it's a bit shameful, really, because, come on, tell us, what can you do? But if, if, if this is a court case, then all we're met with all we're met with is complete silence. Hello, are, are you going to say anything? Are you going to argue? Say something, idols. Do something. Do anything. But these idols, they remain silent. Not because they choose to remain silent, but because they literally cannot speak. They cannot act. In fact, these idols are so useless that in these chapters multiple times, God shows us this ridiculous picture of an idol maker having to nail the stupid thing down so that it doesn't fall over under its own weight. Now, this silence would have been enough, you would think, but God keeps on going to humiliate these idols and those who would trust in these idols. Now, I'm really shocked by how much money companies will pour into marketing and advertising. Uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes even millions of dollars, you know, during Super Bowl hour or whatever it is in America. 
millions of dollars poured into ads that would grab your attention, millions of dollars spent into psychologically analyzing people to find the best way to convince you to part with your money to buy their brand new product, to sell you a dream, a lifestyle that you never knew you wanted. And the thing is, companies will continue to spend that much money over and over again because, well, it works. Now, I must confess, sometimes I quite enjoy watching ads because I like to analyze them. I like to figure out what, what's going on, what are the different strategies that these ads are, are using to try and sell you stuff that you don't need. Uh, whether it be celebrity endorsement, making you think like, if you wear those pair of underpants, you'll be just like Tom Cruise. Or being as weird as possible, just so that the brand name would stick in your mind that you'll go away humming that really annoying tune, but then you'll think about that brand when, when, when you see it. And I found that once you know how they're trying to manipulate you, then these ads really start to lose their power. The, the magic really disappears, doesn't it? Sometimes you just can't help but laugh at how pathetic and what lengths that they go to to try and sell you their product that you really don't need. And so God is trying to do that right now with the idols. Because God says, come, come with me, take a look behind the scenes. Come and see how these idols are made. Don't be fooled by them anymore. And so just picture that scene that Jane read for us this morning. The blacksmith, the mighty blacksmith, he, he picks up a tool, maybe a hammer, and he has to uh, heat it up in the fire first. But as he waits, it's slowly heating up. Okay, I think it's hot enough now. And then he starts hammering. How does he hammer? Ooh, look at the might of his tiny human arm. Wow, look how powerful that is. And he hammers, hammers, hammers. Oh, it's getting tired. Oh, my strength is gone. Oh, I'm feeling faint. I'm, oh, I'm getting thirsty. Better take a rest. Get something to eat. Get something to drink. That mighty idol maker. Then let's consider the, the carpenter. Carefully sketching out on his block of wood. You know, he's got his pencil, whatever. Okay, yeah, this is, yeah, that's a good God. That's a pretty good God. And he gets a chisel, chisel it out. And what form does he make? It's in the form of a human being. Wow, what a powerful, mighty God this human being created will be. And what does he do with it? After he's got this little wooden figure, human being, action figure, he puts it in a nice, cozy home. Ah, you can sit there on my shelf in the corner of my house. My God, you can live there. Isn't that nice? Take a good look at those images. Because surely the created thing that you just made can't be greater than the creator, right? The, the strong, mighty creator who gets thirsty, who gets hungry, who gets tired. That wonderful image of the human being, that glorious image of the human being instilled in this copy of a copy with another small wooden human being. But it gets worse. Because what is this divine material that you're worshipping? What are these gods made out of? Verse 14 in chapter 44, cedar, cypress, or oak, you know, the, the finest wood that you can find. But the thing is, even if the man planted that tree himself and waited 20 years or whatever for it to grow, it wasn't really the man that made the tree grow in the first place. God, God was one that provided rain for, for the tree to grow, not man's own power. And then when the, when the tree grows up, 
he chops it down. Some of the wood he, he burns up to make fuel for himself, to keep himself warm. Some of it he cooks a meal over. And then what? The leftover bits, the stuff that he has left over from cooking and keeping himself warm. He says, this is God material. This is what I'm going to bow down to, this lump of wood. I'm going to sacrifice to it. And he says, you are going to save me. You are going to make me happy. You are going to make me rich. You are my God, lump of wood. And God says, can you stop and look at that? Can you see how stupid that is? And so let's hear God's verdict on their witness. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are blind. Their minds are closed. No one, verse 19, no one stops to think. No one looks at that scene and sees how ridiculous that is. Just look at what's going on. This is what the courtroom scene shows us. You have God. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. He can predict the future, and he loves you. He has promised to save you. And then you have the idols. They do nothing. They can't speak. And they're made in man's glorious image. And they're made out of worthless materials. Useless. And so at this point, we need to ask ourselves, and it's so clear, why would God's people want to worship these idols when they have their all-powerful God as their God in the first place? Think about the situation that God's people were in. They were conquered by the Babylonians, sitting in a foreign land. They were surrounded by all the Babylonian gods, right? Maybe they were tempted to think, I wonder if these Babylonian idols are actually more powerful than our God. Is that why we were defeated? Is that why we're sitting here, conquered by them? Maybe these idols have power. And then you can look at the allure of idols. Because unlike God, these idols don't really ask very much, ask for very much. They, these idols, each of them, they just need you to sacrifice a little bit of your life, not give your whole life to them. These idols, they don't demand exclusive worship. They're happy for you to have 10 other gods, 100 other gods, as long as you just give a little bit of a sacrifice to them. In fact, uh, you, you can pick and choose whichever one suits you at any given moment. You are in control of your idol. It's like a vending machine. That when you, Whenever you feel like it, whenever you have a need, you put in a dollar and you get what you want out of it. Doesn't that seem a lot more convenient than trusting in a God who has all power, all control, a God that you cannot manipulate to get what you want out of him? None of this leaving up to God's plan, trusting that God really loves you to bless you in God's own way, right? Just do it yourself. And so, in short, people worship idols because they claim to provide a shortcut to something that only God himself can offer. And now, as you heard me talk about why idols were attractive to God's people back then, I hope you can start to see how idolatry is actually still a problem for us today. Because we also have ways to grasp at things that we want instead of trusting in God, don't we? Things that take the place of God as being the most important in our lives. And so we also have the structures, the things in our lives 
that we can sacrifice them, sacrifice to them when we want something out of them, right? When someone desperately wants that promotion, that status, or that extra money that, that will give them the extra freedom to buy whatever they want, they would gladly sacrifice family relationships, less time with their kids, just to please the God of work. Or, or whether it be sacrificing responsibilities in life, having no obligations, not being tied down to just so that they can have more fun, more leisure, to see the world, whatever it might be. And so just like God's people back then, we are surrounded with idols all around us, tempting us to trust in them instead of God to bring us joy, happiness, meaning, and security. And if that's the case, what, what, what do we need to do then? Well, first, we need to identify our idols in our lives. What are the signs that something is an idol in our lives? Uh, Tim Keller has helpfully said that when looking for our idols, we don't simply look at our behaviors. Although, of course, our behaviors can be clear red flags in, in identifying the idols for us. But we need to go deeper. We need to go into the heart level and look at our emotions. What does our heart say that they de- our heart desires more? And so just for an example, I'm going to paint for you some of the own situations that I face, how I've reacted to them, and then you could think about what the idols are in my life. Uh, so a couple of years ago, when I was in Sydney, uh, I thought it was time to buy a new car because I just had a new baby. I suddenly cared a lot more about safety features in the car. Before, I, I didn't care if I drove a bomb. But now that I have a, have a, a baby, oh, okay, safety is really important. And so I spent all my free time poring over car reviews, watching video after video, article after article, before I finally decided I wanted this car. The only thing, though, was that the trim that I really wanted, that had all the bells and whistles, well, it was out of my budget. And so after a long deliberating process, I thought, okay, as nice as all these extra safety equipment was and the fancy features, I just couldn't justify the extra cost. I made up my peace. But then, one day, a car with all this upgraded trim came onto the market, and the best of all, it was within my budget. And so I excitedly I called the dealer. I made an appointment because I was busy at the time, and I rushed there as soon as I was free. But when I got there, they told me the car had already sold. And I remember being in a sour mood when I drove home. For the rest of the afternoon and evening, I was extremely grumpy. I didn't even want to play with my kid, Beth. I didn't want to talk to Sarah because I was so upset. What's my idol there? A few years before that, we had bought our first home in Sydney. Uh, And during a Bible study on on money and greed, a a friend remarked in the study, Felix, I wish that I had your attitude with money because you live so modestly. Uh, You don't go on expensive holidays or, or buy expensive toys like the rest of us. But deep down, this made me feel really uncomfortable. Because yes, I didn't, I didn't spend on all those things, but I knew the first place that my money went as soon as I got my paycheck. It went straight into my mortgage. I had an offset account, right? Uh, I think many of you know what that is, but it reduces the interest that you pay to the bank the more money you have in that account. And it meant whenever I put money into that account, I was one step closer to paying off my loan. 
And I felt uncomfortable with my friend's statement because I knew that if a significant and unexpected purchase came up and I needed to withdraw money from that account, I would feel anxious and stressed out as I withdrew money, as I was making negative progress on becoming debt-free. Now, what's my idol there? Lastly, as I was trying to spend some time with my kids, Sarah was out, I've decided to put some effort into doing some arts and crafts with my kids. It's not something that I usually would do. But as the activity went on, I was met with grumbling and complaining. Because see, one of my kids didn't want to spend time doing arts and crafts all day. They wanted to, do, they wanted to watch TV instead. But I insisted, no, 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 it's not good. You need a break from TV. And the response that I got was a whole lot of attitude. And the child began to whisper comments to the sibling that I found really disrespectful and it really attacked my authority uh, as a parent. And I thought to myself, I don't need this. I'm putting all the effort to be a good parent and this is how I'm treated. And so I grumbled and I, I retreated to my room angrily, scrolling through Facebook as a distraction. Now these are just a, a couple of snapshots in my life which should make it clear what the idols in my life are. Because each time my idol is attacked or threatened, my heart responds with strong emotions. Whether it be the joy of finding a car that I didn't know that I could afford, to being extremely angry when I lose that. Whether it be the safety and feeling secure in seeing progress in, being, in, in, in my home uh, being paid off, or anxiety when I don't see that progress whether it's the presumption that my effort to parent well must be rewarded with obedience, gratitude, and respect, or the anger and the sense of injustice when I'm not getting that. My emotions lay bare what my heart truly says I think I need in my life. Now, just to be clear here, I'm not saying that these things that I just mentioned, it's wrong to want that, or it's wrong to want my kids to respect me. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying, look at our emotions. Are we overreacting to the situation when we shouldn't be? Because that can be identified a red flag that perhaps we're putting too much stock in something instead of putting our trust in God instead. And so let me ask you the question then. What does your heart treasure as God's in your life? What do your emotions reveal about what truly brings you joy? What truly you think your life wouldn't be worth living if you ever lost it? What is it that your mind naturally drifts to as you sit there daydreaming, as you think, ah, oh, I can't wait for that day? What is it? Just spend the next 10 seconds thinking about that. What is it? Because we all need to identify our idols. But of course, identifying our idols is not enough. Because after we do that, then what? Well, just like the physical idols that people made with wood and gold back then, we need to take a good look at our idols and see the reality of what's going on. Our God confronts us today, just like that he did back then, to stop and think, to see the stupidity of banking our dreams, our security on these man-made things. When you stop and think about it, when you have that dream job, that dream gadget 
your dream boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it is, when have these things ever given you lasting joy? How long did that high really last for until you can see through the cracks of your idol and you're left empty again? How quickly does our dream house that we first bought suddenly need repairs, need renovation? How quickly buying that dream house do we suddenly see a friend's new house and we think, oh, ours doesn't look that great anymore? How quickly does your promotion and pay rise seem too small to live off? This happens to all our idols. And so that's the first thing we need to do. Stop and think. Once we identify our idols, we need to see that none of our idols are cracked up as, they, as we thought they were. Now, at this point, we could talk about how to cast away our idols as a response. And, and that, that would be really, really helpful. I wish we had more time to really spend to talk about how we can get rid of our idols, to, to stop depending on them, and to, tr- and to stop sacrificing everything that we have to our idols. But as helpful as that would be, even if we did that, it's actually not enough. Because you know what happens when we throw away our idols? Our hearts simply find another idol, another treasure to latch onto and start worshipping that instead. And so let's see what God's solution here. Let's go back to a courtroom that God sets up for his people. Because what does God ask of his people? It's a question that we first heard from God last week and continues into this week. To whom will you compare me? The best way to deal with the allure, the temptation of idols in our lives is to look to God. Because we've seen the worthlessness of our idols now we need to apply what we saw last week again. Behold your God. See, look at your God. Behold what God can do, what God has promised to do, and what God has already done, both for his people Israel and also for us sitting here today. Because you want security that your idols will give you? Well, who else? Who else and what else has complete control, not only over your own life, but the future of nations and kingdoms, all of world history? Who else can promise you a place in his new creation where there will be no more suffering and pain, no more death? How's that for security? You want your idols to give you true meaning and significance in your life? Who else has called you into the mission to save souls for eternity? to offer them to step from death into life, darkness into light, a hope that won't be dashed the next time the stock market crashes, the next pandemic comes, or the next human war strips away our human treasures. You want a sense of belonging. You want to experience intimacy and love. Who else will love you to the point of sending their perfect one and only son, his sinless son, to die for you on the cross, to take your place, to pay the penalty while you were unworthy, while you were still sinners. He did that because we were all worshipping our idols and deserved punishment. See, whatever our idols promise to give us, our God, is the only one who can actually give it to you. And when God gives us what we want, it will be infinitely 
more satisfying, and far more secure. There just isn't any comparison. But the thing is, it's still tricky, isn't it? It's still so much easier to be swayed by what's right in front of us. Our idols claim right here, now I can give you what you want right now if you sacrifice for me. It's so hard to instead trust in God's timing, what we cannot see immediately. And so what we need to be doing is to heed the warning of God to his people. We need to constantly people who would just stop and think. Stop and think before we blindly follow the idols of the world around us. Stop and think before our hearts turn to enjoying something, anything other than God himself. Stop and think about how our idols just keep disappointing us time and time again. Stop and think on the God who has control over all of history and who has shown you how much he loves you on that cross. Will you behold your idol? And then behold the God of the universe and see that it is only God loves us and can give us what we need and what we want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you to confess that there may be many, many idols in our lives, idols that we just blatantly run to, to make us happy, to to make us think that that's what we need idols that we might not even know of or aware of. Father, please forgive us for when we have prioritized other things before you. Cleanse us, Lord, we pray. Wash us clean and help us to have a new heart to no longer chase after all these other other worthless man-made things made in our own image, but to come pure and to rest in your salvation for us, in your forgiveness for us. We thank you that you have provided this for us. And so help us to get rid of our idols and keep looking to you, that you would renew that vision of your almighty power, that there is no comparison, no other thing, no other God compares to you. Will you continually transform us day by day, we pray. In Christ's name.